Are you looking for the best tips and tricks to run a successful dental practice? You're in the right place. Welcome to Bulletproof Dental Practice, interviewing some of today's most successful dentists with your hosts, Dr. Peter Bolden and Dr. Craig Spodak. Okay, welcome back to the Bulletproof Dental Practice podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Bolden, and we have the other co-host, Dr. Craig Spodak on as well. And today we are talking with Bruce Johnston from Apex Design Build. It's got a pretty cool website. You've got a pretty cool portfolio there, pal, with um, a lot of cool design and uh, for dentistry. And Craig and I are both pretty passionate about this. Um, Craig has one of the most beautiful offices I've ever seen in, in all of my dental career down in Delray Beach. And, um, you know, I'm actually in the process right now of building my third location um, and it's a little higher, you know, my, my practice models are a little bit, uh, kind of, they look a lot like the stuff that's in your portfolio. So I'm really interested to see how you can bring value to some of our listenership and, you know, help with efficiency design. We have a lot of young listeners, so this will be very important for them as they're dreaming of their, of their dream practice, so to speak, what they can do to implement efficiency as well as aesthetics. So welcome to the show, Bruce, and um, let's jump into it. Anything you want to add too, by the way, about, about who you are and your company, feel free to kind of do that right now. Sure. Thank you, Dr. Bolden. Appreciate that intro. Um, yeah, I'm a, a partner and project consultant here at Apex Design Build, um, and we are uh, the dental design build gurus. So um, family-owned business has been for four generations. Um, my, uh, I guess my ambition coming into the company as part of that fourth generation was to um, be able to bring more expertise from the business standpoint um, to our clients um, to ensure, you know, success and longevity of their practices um, by way of designing and building, you know, facilities that make sense for the client. So um, that was my studies was, was business and communications and um, as opposed to being an architect myself, but uh, joined, the, joined the company to assist our doctors in delivering a uniquely integrated approach to design construction for dental practices. So that's what we're all about, and I appreciate having me on. Let me just jump in, if you don't mind, Pete and uh, Bruce. You know, I just built that my building uh, three, four years ago. And for those of the people that are listening that don't really understand this stuff, because I, I got an education the hard way, you know, design-build firm – is basically a one-stop shop. They kind of encompass everything from architectural to structural and actually deliver your complete project. Because what happened with me, I hired an architect, an artist actually. I hired an artist to design my building. Then I had an architect stamp it, had a different structural engineer, which I didn't realize, but that I hired. I didn't know I hired them. I thought the architect hired them and then hired a GC. And, uh, you know, the building got completed, but along the way, there was a ton of finger pointing. So the architect was saying, well, it's the GC. The GC says the architect. And I'm kind of playing like a school teacher here trying to get everybody to just get along. And what I think is unique about what you do is this, the buck stops with you guys. So that's, that's pretty cool. So, right. so for, for the listening audience, you've got to understand that at the end, it's going to be you kind of playing the, the quarterback here and trying to align all the different disciplines to get your product done. You don't realize that. You figure you're hiring a bunch of resourceful people that can work it out. But in the end, any mistakes are going to be finger, a, a series of finger pointing, and you're going to be writing checks for that. So I thought that's a – I was really excited to hear what you had to say just based on my own experience. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we um, Historically, as a firm, we came from the architectural background. Then we were general contractors, and we saw – our clients being, you know, the quarterback, as you said, stuck in the middle, 
trying to uh, you know, mediate between all the groups. They all sort of have their own agendas, and you're trying to rally them and pull them together for the outcome that you want. So it was really to the, to the popular demand of our clients that we um, transitioned to design build, and that was about um, six years ago after being a general contractor um, for many years. So you know, having the interior designer on staff, having the architect on staff, and having the construction experts on staff all on one team engaged with the client as a single point of contact um, allows us to take uh, total accountability and responsibility yeah. to the project. And when you look at the numbers, um, you know, we've, we've tried to calculate what actually are, you know, the client, what are the clients saving? What, what does their bottom line look like between these two models? It's impressive. Um, I mean, time is money. We know that, but even when you just look at the cost and the expenditure by hiring all of those professionals separately, we've seen 33% um, average cost reduction. So I believe, it. I believe it. I forgot about that. I had an interior designer on it. So I actually had an architect, an artist, an interior designer slash dental consultant. Then I had like Patterson. It was incredible. It was totally incredible. In the end of the day, like if you're not paying attention to all the emails going back and forth, ultimately it's your fault. Like, you know, you, 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 I don't even, I was, and my structural engineer, I had no idea, but I had contracted with them. You know, I didn't know any better. People were like, do you want to hire him or should we? I'm like, I don't know. I guess I'll hire him. I don't know what the difference is. Or my civil engineer, for example, that was hired by me. I had no idea. So, I mean, you, it's, right. it's you, incredible what the, the amount of resources that you have to uh, hire. And, and in effect, you took all the liability for that project by engaging with them directly. Um, I had no idea. Another- I mean, I would just ask, right. like, well, what's the usual? Like, I don't know. Like, oh, a lot of our clients like to hire their own civil engineer. I'm like, okay, that sounds fine. And then I'm ask- I'm answering questions about, like, freaking drainage and water runoff. And I'm like, I have no idea. It's just brutal. nuts. Yeah. Brutal. Brutal. <laughs> Do you find that this is common, Bruce, in the industry? Um, you know, it, it, a lot of it goes by by market. Some markets are, you know, dominated by a leading architect who does a lot of the um, private healthcare or dental um, design work, and then bids it out to contractors. Other markets are um, more saturated by design builders. So it really does depend. But I would say still the design build model is a minority um, across the country, and and we see scenarios all the time where where clients. And a lot of times what happens to the doctors is the first thing that comes to mind when they need to build a facility is, well, I need an architect. I need somebody to help me design it, create the plan so that I can get a contractor to build it. And that's their first, um, that's their thought process is that I need to find an architect first. They go out and they find an architect. So I think it's just, it's taking time to, to educate um, the industry about this model. And, and we're seeing some markets picking up on it faster than others. Honestly, we only picked, picked it up ourselves, you know, about uh, five years ago. So um, there you have it. <laughs> I'm super bummed right now because literally I'm in the throes of construction and, and I did it kind of the way that Craig just described or I'm doing it that way, but not as not as convoluted because it's not as massive as build as his is. But I'm like, sure. holy cow, I wish I had, you know, this is just another evidence of hindsight. I wish I had a, re- a rewind button right now because... I can I can foresee what you're even talking about how it would just be so much simpler to design and build all in one fail. <laughs> well, also also yeah. just liability, Peter. Just straight up, like you know, when I don't know how many disciplines you've hired. I like I think we should talk about that. But like when the architect <laughs> when the architect makes a mistake, you know, like where he designs something that doesn't really work, 
and structural has to come in and say, hey, man, we need some big old steel over it to make that cantilever, that canopy. Guess who's going to be coming out of pocket? Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to be slicking checks for that versus like I would imagine with a design build, it's all the buck stops at them. You know, they can't point those fingers. So um, that's hey, right. As soon as we've committed to the project, committed to the cost, it's our baby. You know, it's in our hands, and we've got and that's to, beautiful. We've committed man. to deliver the project to um, to your expectation, and and the uh, the difference is that all of the due diligence is done on the front end. So when we're when we're establishing, you know, the the um, the pre construction planning, what you just mentioned as an example is a perfect example. You know, suddenly you you have to add a bunch of steel to um, to spend a cantilever, you know, canopy or something like that. That should have been determined way up front in pre-construction, you know, and that should have been included in the initial scope um, in a design-build model. Yeah, it's just crazy that um, it's not. So, Peter, just out of curiosity, I think it's valuable. How, what, what, how many disciplines did you have to hire? You hired the architect and the GC, or so I hired the artist slash like let's get creative about what the space is going to look like conceptually, and then okay. hired, and then we took those plans to an architect who then. They went to their engineers, right? And we've looped in lead consultants. Thanks. Yeah. thanks Greg. <laughs> You're welcome. And uh, you've done a good thing for the environment, and yeah. you'll be rewarded karmically. Maybe not financially, but karmically, you've done a good thing. And uh, and now I'm the one in charge of picking the GC based on quotes. Yeah, that sucks. So good luck understanding their scope of work and who has what included. That's the problem. That's, <laughs> that's the problem. Be the worst part of it. You, well, you, at this point, not to jump into Bruce's world, but you're going to need to hire a construction manager, wouldn't you say, Bruce? That's right. Absolutely. To control that 100. Um, percent You know, it's uh, it's a general contractor's game is going to be um, produce a you know a bid with a with a sort of base number that's very attractive, make that number look attractive, but then hide away exclusions and things that they know you're going to need but don't want to have it in the base bid because they would love to win this bid first yep. and then present some of the alternates or exclusions later as being necessities. So what you really need, if you're going, you're, you're already into this traditional model. Um, you've, you've hired the, the various disciplines. 100% need a construction manager that's on your side acting in your best interest. Maybe with some sort of clause that's incentivizing him to save money. You know, I think that always works. And uh, engineer it. Yeah, value engineer at number one. And also, very important, and Bruce, I'm sorry to step on you. I just got my ass kicked with mine. And please, just this is only anecdotal, but if you find something different, just correct me. But definitely a liquidated damages clause for being late from your GC. Would you agree or disagree? I agree 100%. See, that's that's the other other, um, common dilemma with the traditional model is controlling timeline. Um, Because what will happen is there's going to be finger pointing on, on the timeline even saying, well, if the architect would have specified it this way or that way, I wouldn't have had to, you know, add this extra two weeks of time to to build it to spec. The architect's going to say, well, the contractor should have seen that. It was on my original plan. You're going to have that debate. But so, you have that you have that debate like 50 freaking times. It gets so annoying. Least, at a certain at point, you're like, guys, I don't know shit about this. You're supposed to be the ones I hired for this. I'm paying you all. It's so upsetting. I'm a dentist, not a builder. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, one, yeah, those are those are um, all very good points, uh, Craig. To have in the in the uh, some sort of clause to protect yourself on that. So I'm looking at your um, your ten mistakes to avoid. I like that actually. You download from your website as your your kind of lead generation stuff, but it's a good it's a good white paper that you guys have written. 
Um, and a couple of the, you know, and I guess we could kind of go through them chronologically, but one of the things that's jumping out to me as a topic of you giving advice and value to people in, in this space is taking the wrong shortcuts. And can you elaborate, if someone's in the build, can you, can you elaborate on what some of the wrong shortcuts would be? I'm guessing from a financial aspect, it's the wrong shortcut or maybe a time or efficiency shortcut, but can you elaborate on some of the wrong shortcuts? Yeah, I mean, there's um absolutely, and I don't have the uh, the ten mistakes right in front of me, so um, pardon me if I'm missing something. But you know, there's there's shortcuts that can be made that look like smart things to do um, through the course of the project. And early on, um, you know, it might be skip a step on the planning. You know, say for looking into the future, um, I might need eight operatories. Right now, I really only only need you know four or five. Um, but you might say, well, you know, right now I'm just going to build what I need for right now. I'm not going to bother plumbing in um, the other operatories uh, for the future. I have the space if I need them. Um, I'm going to save the money. So that that's something. Those type of things oh, will, okay. will cross your mind. So just the being short-sighted with your vision, essentially, right? Not not so much that's like – That's a big part up front. Exactly okay. right. Got you. So take a shortcut because you think it's going to uh, save you some cost. You know, later on in the project, it might be – um, take a, sh- a shortcut again, monetary driven, and it's going to start to uh, come back and, and bite you. You know, five years on the line when you have residential quality doors sagging or, or hinges falling off. <laughs> That's interesting, Craig. I know you brought in you. Th- you said something about Patterson, and um, sometimes I-, I know that this has been the case in dentistry. And, and Bruce, I'm sure you're probably aware of this, but obviously the supply houses will get. You know, they're the first to know that oh, we're going to expand and build an office because, you know. And so they're like, oh, we have people that can do that. And then they send you back, like, you know, here's your space and here's the cookie cutter, like, room, the most boring, simple design ever. And maybe it's efficient. I don't know. But usually it's just like, here's a here's a rectangle and we cut it up into a grid and here's all your operatories and here's your waiting room, blah, 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 blah. So how do you see – so there's two, two – my question is kind of two-pronged. So obviously a lot of those offices have been built because it looks like, quote unquote, a dental office. So what is the value to stepping back and going and looking at it from an aesthetic standpoint and ergonomic standpoint, but as well as the clinical aspect as well? So kind of talk about the differences in your world versus like a Patterson cookie cutter build and why it's why obviously it looks better. We know that I'm looking at your website. Obviously they look better, but Talk about it from a functional aspect because we dentists are very functional. Yep, absolutely. Now, um, I'm not going to you know, knock the Patterson drawings. I think they have their you know, purpose. And um, just that when you look at where they're coming from, from their perspective, it's very clinically driven, um, you know, operatories, a stereo lab, and, the, and the, um, the functionality end of it, which, is, which needs to be there. Um, you know, good function is going to drive your efficiencies, and you need that for your practice. Um, but the cookie cutter approach isn't going to go away typically with a with a Patterson or a supply house sort of drawing because their um you know their team isn't thinking about it from an environment standpoint necessarily of what is my patient's experience and what is the tone that I'm trying to set for my patient. So depending on your patient persona, you might have uh, a practice that's catering towards you know family or you might have a practice catering towards white collar um working professionals or something like that. You need to identify what you know, type of environment you're trying to create. And that's where you start to change things from a um, aesthetic point of view to make it different, to make it unique to your own practice and your own patients, and then strike the balance between aesthetics and fun- and functionality. And that's where our team with the um, the combination of interior designers and architects 
working together on it, you're going to maintain that function anesthetic um, successfully. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's kind of a misconception and Craig, you can, can jump in on this, but I think there's a misconception on the cookie cutter builds. They can pack more into square footage, right? Yeah. Like you can get six ops in 2000 square feet if you do it the way we said. And then if you go more of a aesthetic, you know, spa like build, obviously you're going to, well, not obviously, but you might, you may cannibalize some of that space, which would then you know, eat into your potential profits. Well, well, let me, let me speak to that because, you know, Peter, you've been to my office and it's a very space generous concept and, you know, the supply house's goal is to, it doesn't matter which one, they don't make money on designing your space. They make money on selling you crap to fill the space. So they're going to be highly incentivized to put as much dental equipment in as possible. And I think dentistry of the past was all about, how much you can fit in efficiency, how much operatory you can cram in per square foot. But when you look at my concept, I have 13,000 square feet and only 18 ops. If you divide it out, there's a there's some sort of a formula that says you need about 400 square feet per operatory. Bruce, is it still and that that's still a pretty decent metric? Yeah, that's, that's right. Between 400 and 450 is the general rule of thumb in the industry. So, so we're very driven by these metrics, but, but I'm here to challenge everybody that's listening to say that space is not wasted if your mind is using it. Starbucks came along, you know, 20 years ago with their retail concept and everybody said, well, why do you need so much square feet if you're doing a takeout coffee store? Like people couldn't understand it. But what Starbucks did and what the Apple store did as well is they have experiential space. They have space where people are using it, even if it's not for the direct function of consuming coffee or buying coffee. And I've kind of employed the same thing in my office because when it's busy here and we have, you know, 150 patients coming through per day, the waiting area doesn't feel like a waiting area. There's so much space. You're not sitting there like in a crowded little waiting room. And I, I would propose that that's value to patients. I don't want to go, I, you know, my wife's OBGYN, I remember being in there. It was like, I was like literally sitting on top next to people and it was just driving me crazy. And I started figuring out while I'm waiting 20 minutes for the doctor why I don't actually like him and he's my friend. I'm like making value judgments about it. (laughs) So, so, you know, when you challenge yourself and look at dentistry as a retail concept and not necessarily as healthcare, because let's face it, everything in dentistry beyond an extraction is an upsell. The only thing medically necessary in the entire dental space is an extraction. Everything else is a discretionary purchase. Therefore, we have to consider ourselves retail more than healthcare. I mean, that's just the way it is. I know, I know you, we don't like to think of it that way, Mm -hmm. but you can live without teeth. When my son was one years old, the guy's eating steak. I mean, we've understood that we, we want teeth and we want to preserve them, but it's not absolutely medically necessary. So let's challenge ourselves when we're talking about space theory and design. Let's look at our retail counterparts. Retail uses space for experience, not just efficiency. So if that's the case, then your Patterson or your Shine or Darby or whoever you're going to use, the general supply house is not going to be embracing that. Like how much equipment can I fit in here? And, you know, guys like the design builders don't care because, frankly, if you put in less equipment, you might have more money for uh, furniture and fixtures and, 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 you know, nicer stuff. So when you look at those models, and I've talked to the big dogs of dentistry, the big corporate guys, they like to boil down your revenue per square foot. And I fly off the, you know, mine, mine's off the chart with revenue per square foot. And I would say we probably have, Pete, you've been here, but I probably have 8,000 of, and I'm using finger quotes, non-productive space, you know, wasted space, if you will. 
you're really talking our language when you come to uh, user experience because you know we we try to educate doctors all the time, and that is that what is going to what is going to bring a, a referral from an existing patient, or what's even going to bring that patient back again? Um, it's not how many chairs you fit into the space, but rather um, what is the experience and and um, you know the treatment, the care, the you know more than what they experience in the dental chair itself, but in the practice. And that's what is going to make them talk about you and, and tell their friends and family and, and ultimately drive more business. Well, that's um, the first so experience you, you have when you enter the space is the reception area. So when you go to the uh, the, the supply houses, the, the reception area is always undersized because they don't. They, that's not a place you can fit equipment. But if you walk into a, a luxury hotel, hmm. the reception area is way oversized because the last thing you want to do is like check into the W in South Beach in Miami and have like – 15 people sitting side by side. It's like a freaking train station. And you can't do that in your dental practice too because it's the same thing. If you put in the, the colloquial 1.5 reception chairs per, per operatory or whatever the hell that metric is, you're going to have at 8.55 for your 9 o'clock appointment, you're going to have like nine people sitting stacked in there. And that's not a very comfortable thing. I have a lot of pain around that because it was really frustrating and a lot of dentists are calling me up. You know, They see what we have done and they want a lot of advice and I mean I, I feel like I really got a butt kicking with mine. Right. I mean really I think there's um, you know, educating that needs to be done but we always say let's start the project with a, a vision. Let's start the project with a session to go through You know, what are you trying to achieve with this practice because if it's not Medicaid, if it's anything but Medicaid, you, you should be Avoiding that, you know, 15 chairs in a row packing into your, into your reception area for all the reasons that you've just outlined. I mean, it's something that we uh, approach on every, and every product we get engaged with is first off, who is the patient that we're trying to attract into the, into the practice and how are we going to design it such that they want to be there? When they walk in the door, they, they appreciate it and they are walking to something that, you know, they, um, are going to gladly refer. For their, their friends and family too. And it's so funny because all of that is is a feeling, not a process. So I think exactly. the, dental right. space, the dental space is all about when you're talking about designing, it's all the, the conversation is 95% process and efficiency and steps and 5% experience, feeling, and, and result. And if, if you look at it, it, a lot of it is, is the functional flow of the, of the office. And, and actually, it's not a bad thing to have to walk more. Patients don't necessarily mind having to walk from reception to their operatory as long as there's an engaged conversation that's happening. You know, people don't mind walking as long as there's something to do while walking. So it points of interest along the way, right? Yeah, exactly. If there's points of interest, if there flows in some fashion. But everybody else is just talking about the actual process of how to bring the instruments, how to bring the patients in and out faster. I mean, if you look at McDonald's uh, restaurants, uh, you know, up until about five, ten years ago, actually five years ago, they were attaching their chairs to their tables and they put very harsh colors on the inside of McDonald's because their motto was a billion serve. They wanted to get you in and out of that place as fast as possible. So they attached the chairs to the table so that when you're done eating, it's uncomfortable. People like to push back, you know, push a little back from the table and kind of relax for a minute. They yeah. actually made it physically uncomfortable to get your ass out fast enough. Starbucks comes around and says, you know what, we're going to put big fluffy couches and stuff because we actually want you to hang. We want you to have a great experience. We want you to come back more often, hang out, buy another cup of coffee, buy a Michael Bublé CD and all that crap. So it's like dentistry can take a cue from the changing face of retail because if dentistry is is, is re retail and we can all embrace that concept, we got to start being 
the Starbucks and the, you know, looking and feeling versus the McDonald's of 1995. So uh, it, it, I think that's a really big component to who we are and what we are. It's more of a concert mentality too, isn't it? So it's a, it's a, um, a human engagement, human touch sort of um, experience that, that um, patients appreciate, especially when they're already under a certain amount of, you know, anxiety or stress coming in if they're having a treatment of some sort. Um, so why not dissolve that with an approach that, that isn't going to only just further, you know, cause anxiety? 100%. Yeah, 100%. Let's take cues from other things as well. And I, I want to credit, you know, Dr. Peter, I want to I want to just let everybody know just again, you know, four or five, six years ago before my office was even built, I was watching what you're doing with Atlanta Dental Spa, you know, liking your Facebook posts, making all my marketing and all my designers watch what you're doing. We used you as an influential a resource of what can be done because you're when you go to Atlanta Dental Spa and you look around, you take a virtual tour of your office, which both of us have on our websites. Your office feels like a, you know your receptionists feel like a comfortable living room and stuff like that. So we took that from you. But if you think about like the other retail components, what hotels and restaurants, when you go to a hotel or a restaurant, you're actually in the space of I'm going to have an awesome time and have a glass of wine. I'm going to chill out. We have fun. And look at how much money they spent on reinforcing that belief system. You're already going thinking you're going to have a good time. No one is going to our offices saying this is going to be really fun. At best, they're going to say I'm going to be happy when it's done. But no one's like psyched up to go to our office. So it's even more important for us to do what the hotels and restaurants do and make those creature comforts. Because if you're already going to a restaurant or hotel with a belief system it's going to be fun and they're still spending money on their interiors, then imagine how much more influential and important it is for us to reframe or preframe what an experience could be. That's exactly right. I mean, that's um, that's, uh, the other the other um, half of the of the experience. It's not only what's uh, in the clinic, but everything else. You know, so that's great discussion. Craig, I think that that's great for the profession as a whole, I, and I hope that this becomes more and more of the standard because obviously we have this stigma like, oh, I hate going to the dentist, and you, like you hear that from people. But what if you could make it even just a little bit the excitement of going to that hotel lobby because no one's no one's grumpy pants when they go into like a high end hotel for a weekend stay. Like no one's unhappy about that. Everyone's excited, and it starts like you said with the with the experience and the and the lobby and the music and the sounds and the light like all that plays into it yeah that's not the only thing that goes into it obviously but man it's a good start and i mean a rising tide floats all ships so you know you may think of it as competition but if if we as the professionals and and guys in the front lines are leading this change it'll shift the profession i mean i'm i'm watching um you know like what dr michael app is doing with app aesthetic in dubai he's not a friend but i'm I'm watching him and what he's doing is good for the profession He's creating some really good results. I mean, I don't know the guy, but he's he's got his own products and he's redefining what dentistry can be. And, uh, you know, I grew up in my dad's old office, uh, you know, with 1970s, looks like the inside of the Brady Bunch house. And it never excited me to be a dentist. And then one day my dad did an interior remodel of his practice. Granted, it wasn't anything like what you have, Peter, or what, I, what I've created now, but it gave the spark of what's possible. Could dentistry be different? 
Could it just be slightly different, more inviting, more, 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 you know, more natural light or what have you? And, and that really excited me. And, and, and we together, along with guys like you, Bruce, could really reshape what the profession could be. And while we're talking about this, I'm sorry to occupy so much. It's just I'm excited about this stuff. Let's talk about natural light and like not only lead design, like environmentally sustainable design, but also like what uh, is widely understood as biophilic design principles. Um, so I created a lead gold facility and Peter, congrats on you pursuing lead certification too, because I was joking when I said there's karmic, uh, ramifications, there's financial ramifications. Studies show that lead certified buildings, um, perform better, not only energy savings wise, but actually in retail environments, they do better. So TD Ameritrade had lead certified branches and non-lead certified branches, and they kind of uh, regulated for socioeconomic differences between different communities. But what they found is that the lead certified TD branches received higher levels of deposit than the non-lead certified um, uh, buildings. And there's an article that's been published, Why Green is Good for Business, and maybe the audience could listen to that. But green is just good beyond just the savings of, of your costs of, of, of maintaining the structure over time. But um, Bruce, are you familiar with like biophilic design principle? Have you heard that coin term before? You know, honestly, I, I bet term no, um, but I, I 100% want to be behind and, and get behind what you're, what you're saying there. You know, natural light... And then lighting in general through the space, you're catering to one of the senses, you know, and, and um, it sets the mood, sets the tone, and has a dramatic impact on the patient's anxiety levels, back to that point. And um, so natural light, trying to let that filter through the, through the whole space, too often in a retail space, which is what we're building more and more of, you know, you find your, your practice in, in a um, sort of storefront setup where you have natural light only coming through um, the the front of the yeah, space. The front, yeah, well, exactly. We've we've made um, we've done things with you know lighting to the to the roof. If it's a single story retail yeah. um, building, you can you can draw light in that way. And even if it's like, not a like window, a, like um, a solar tube or skylight, do you use solar tubes? Yep, yep. The tubes, yeah. the tubes. We've used those, and we use skylights both. And yeah. even if it's not a window where the patient can see out to the outside and in the you know elements of nature, but even just that light itself makes a, a dramatic di- a difference. You know, so down corridors through the space, if you can't let the natural light wash all the way through, at least you can get it through those those tubes or the, or the skylights. Let me, if you don't mind, speak to the um, the studies that show natural lighting. So the biophilic design principle movement um, is pretty cool. It's basically this study that, because you have lead certification, which is mitigating your energy expenses, but you could have a lead certified space that's really kind of cold and disconnected from nature. So the biophilic design principle, I think, is really important um, as it relates to healthcare, because there's been studies that show, they did this study in hospitals, and ICU recovery rooms or post-operative or post-procedural recovery rooms, ones that have windows, nothing more than windows, they have less recurrent infections and people heal faster just by having a window. So they did longitudinal studies that were double blind. People heal better. So as dentists, we're, we're, we're healing. We're healers. We're medical. We're in the medical field. So there's so much we can do that affects not only healing, but purchasing decision. People are more apt to buy when there's natural light. People feel better. People get sick less often. So in our office, 86% of our space is daylit. You can go on spodikdental.com or on Google and do a virtual tour. And I don't know if you realize this, but Google doesn't work left and right. It works up and down. So you can actually look up, 
and see our solar tubes. We employ maybe 15 or 20 solar tubes. I would have put more in if I could. But that waxing and waning of natural light as clouds pass is actually good for your serotonin levels. In fact, a German light bulb manufacturer is making a new light that has a special ballast that's flickering or, or oscillating, I should say, on different wavelengths. So it, it creates your own serotonin because living under fluorescent lights is bad for your health. And there's a huge body of evidence that shows it's not good for you. So not only are you empowering, you're not only doing it for your team to help them feel better, more productive and get sick less often, you're creating a space that's more conducive to, to buying and you're actually feeling better. We spend inordinate amounts of time in our office and it's got to be an environment that you want to be in, never mind uh, your patients for the hour or two hours they're here. So I'm really into that stuff. Obviously. Yeah, it's a fantastic study. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> <Peter>. <laughs> what the hell? Sounded like yeah. I was talking to like a, a light scientist for a second. Oh man, <laughs> you know me, Peter. I'm, I'm, I get into this stuff, yeah. bro. So, Bruce, what if someone, or maybe I should, maybe I should ask Craig, the the biophotonic expert, or whatever you said, biophil, what, what was the word? Uh, biophotometric biophilia fan, phantasmica. So, no, bi, bi, biophilia, biophilia, biophilic design principle. So if you've got a space, so you were you had the luxury, Craig, of kind of doing that in the design process. Like that was really important to you. But let's let's go with someone who is listening to this that maybe has the traditional office that wasn't constructed in there. Now they're like, man, I would love to have some natural light. Like Bruce, what are some hacks that can be implemented other than just like putting a bunch of mirrors everywhere? And I mean, and I guess you guys kind of alluded to them already as those um portholes what are they called the solar tubes solar um, tubes yeah solar i mean yeah. is there any other like any other kind of you know the right lighting and we can kind of go into that in a second but maybe is led better than compact fluorescent or halogens or i don't know maybe if you can't get sunlight my i guess my question is if you can't get There's sunlight sure. what is what can you do what are some like cool little creative ideas that you've got and then let's go into lighting if you you know because that's an important aspect as well so the first measure we try to take is um, how can we let the light wash through the space, wherever the windows are now, you know, there's, let's assume that there's not a way to, to add windows or cut windows into the perimeter walls. Sometimes there actually is. If you're on a corner unit of retail space or something like that, you can add windows. But if we cannot do that, um, we try to use glass as much as we can, glass panels, glass windows and, and doors, um, even even um, you know, windows higher up on walls in operatories to allow that light to pour through. That's Step number one, measure number one that we'll take just to, to um, explore options that way. And um, and you're and saying it you doesn't cannot, have to – sorry to interrupt you, but you're saying it doesn't have to be a lot. I think you kind of said something like that. Like it doesn't have to be like right, a direct yeah. window, just something that gets in those wavelengths, right? Right, light transfers, and, and as long as you're allowing it to transfer um, by way of you know, as much glass as you can, as you can, uh, as you can add realistically, yeah, that's the best measure to do it. Now, otherwise – we are looking at the types of fixtures that we can use. And LEDs have advanced a lot, you know, in the temperature of light that's used to try and mimic the natural light as closely as possible. Um, and, and that's measure number two. But, of course, it's the, uh, the secondary option. But no doubt Craig has an insight there as well. Okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, what about lighting? Craig, I know I noticed that you had, I mean, and that's obviously a, a lead thing, but you had a ton of LED. How, how are... Bruce, can you comment on this? How are like the the quality of light that we perceive as an artificial aspect? How important is that? Let me give I mean, you an example. Let me give you an example. Here, I mean, I'm going to give you a kind of a personal example. So I, in my big office in Buckhead, and you guys, Craig, you'll like this story. 
I actually, um, I have a, we grew and I think I have 13 operators in there. We grew to the point where I actually gave up my upstairs office to one of the doctors we hired because there was nowhere for him to go. And I didn't mind going downstairs because downstairs was a huge room and I had like, you know, a 50 foot wall of whiteboard. I could just sit down there and do the, uh, uh, beautiful mind kind of thing down there with advertising and marketing and all that stuff. But my point of all this is, is that that space was not rebuilt from when I took it over and, you know, it's the existing lighting and it was all, uh, fluorescent bulbs. And I noted, was noticing that every day, like either I was in a bad mood or I had a headache or I just was really tired. And it wasn't until I heard something recently, I think I was actually reading in the book, um, Headstrong by David Asprey and it was talking about how light condition of light actually can affect just so much more than we think. And it was actually blue light versus red light. And because blue light takes a lot more energy for our brains to actually kind of interpret and it's a higher energy light. So it takes a lot more mental capacity to actually filter that out in in terms of the perception we get. And so red light is kind of like the go, 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 go. And it's, it's, believe it or not, it's ironic. I know go, go with a red light, but red is actually energizing light and blue is actually a draining light for us. So I actually went in and I, t- I now turned all those lights off my office and I got a bunch of up lighting, just cheap Ikea lighting and actually have a red bulb. And it, I have not experienced a headache since in the, in the time that I have um, kept those lights off and my oh, energy yeah. levels have not waned like they did in the end of the day. Um, but it was like, you know, it took me 40 years to figure this out. Like, you know, I'm 40 years old. It took, I mean, that should just be like common knowledge and it wasn't. Sorry for that that uh, experience thing, but can you comment on that a little bit more? No, I appreciate that um, that example. I mean, it's um, as Craig commented before. Um, I mean, it's proven that fluorescent lighting is it's uh, detrimental. It really is to our health, and and that's why you know not it's not commonly known, but but as the LED technology continues to develop, these are the types of things that they're researching, and in the practices and the facilities that we build, we are strictly specifying LED fixtures for that reason, and. I mean, you, your scenario of, of moving to you know a basement or a lower level where there was no light, um, and you were trying to just work with what you had, you know that could have been addressed with various types of light, not only overhead light, but then even you know spotlighting or task lighting that's um, the right tone to help you focus and not not drain you from you know from energy levels or or um, give you those types of you know headaches and so on as a result of the lighting. So. Yeah, it's a it's a great study that continues to be done by these by these groups, and and um, we try to stay as closely to the uh, to the edge of it as we can on, on new technology. Um, go ahead, Craig. You know, also no doubt, have a comment. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I do. <laughs> this is probably the most. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Peter, but um, go for it. you know, it's not just the uh, quality of the light, but it's also quantity. So we find that most dental offices are overlit for what you need. So there's task-specific areas and there's reception, non-clinical spaces. And we just, I just think that there's a, you know, commercial design is it's overlit in general. Um, so in the operatories, in our own operatories, we only have one specific downlight that's at the 12 o'clock position, but it's very focused and it's at the working position and all the other lights are up lights. So we have like a floating beam that, that shoots light upward. And um, there's a big move in dentistry to to unclutter the ceiling. And, and in fact, in many of the practices that I know in California, uh, they're not doing overhead um 
uh, operator lights. Everybody's going to headlights. They're getting smaller, cheaper, and and better, better quality. And you know, we, let's face it. The most the most important thing is how your ceiling looks because that's where the patient's just hanging out. And seeing all that equipment over them is not always um, as uh, comforting. But um, you know, it's not only just light, but it's color. You know, there's a British Journal of Science article that talked about colors and the effects of uh, pulse rate. So there's a whole spectrum of colors, which is commonly referred to as cardiac blue. And that, that blue color we've employed in a lot of our interior clinical spaces um, has been scientifically uh, proven to lower pulse. So it's colors, it's things like that. You definitely um, have to take into consideration all of it, but not just the, like I said, not just the qu- quality of the light, compact fluorescent versus LED. And obviously LED has a hum- humongous energy savings and, and lo- longevity to it over compact fluorescent but also just the amount of light. So doing a light study and figuring out, oh, it's the, you know, figuring out what, what's the ambient light that you actually need. In our office, we have um, photometric sensors that lower and raise the light to make it constant. So when it's bright and sunny and the building kind of lights up, the lights dim down. And when it gets cloudy or in the evening, the lights come up. And that saves energy but also keeps a constant level of light. And also the temperature of the, you know, there's different bowls that you can pick. And, I, you know, in dentistry, it's obviously it's pretty important from a shade matching perspective that we try and mimic natural light because something under fluorescence, you know, something at a 2700 Kelvin cool light looks way different than something at 6500. And I don't know where sunlight falls on that, but I think it's from what I remember, I think it was around 6000. Yeah, Kelvin. I think it's 5700 Kelvin is sunlight. Yeah, sunlight. So sunlight is the the holy sunlight in dentistry is kind of the holy grail so not just from a mood perspective but from a most dental practices now are cosmetically driven to a certain degree i mean everyone wants everyone seeks that so it, light is important on all those aspects as well well, well you got to remember light uh you know sunlight might be great for an operatory you know because we're picking color and things like that but people don't you know, depending on reception space could have a different temperature, a different feel, you know, so lighting can provide a very powerful effect. If you look at like retail or hotels, you know, the, the hallways leading to your room are different color temperature than the, the reception area. So there's an opportunity to create different mo- feelings depending on where you, what feeling you want. Sunlight, you know, 57 or 6,000 Kelvin may not be appropriate for, you know, certain spaces. You know, some people don't like the way they look in full sunlight spectrum lighting. Maybe your bathroom should be a little bit less because, you know, you want to make sure you're, you're, you're looking at that. We actually have, uh, we engage lighting engineers for projects. So, um, that's awesome. It sounds crazy, but, but you can't, you can't consider lighting, uh, you know, carefully enough. There's so much you can do in a setting and an environment just with lighting. So, and so um, yeah, it's a very, very, thought. You know, it's just uh, like, oh, put some can light. You know, it's so much of an afterthought. It's just like light is light is light. Check yeah. the box. We need we need a light guy to come in here and put lights up. But I'm, you know, you've got me thinking actually, Craig. Now that I went to and saw your spot about how most of your lighting is up lighting as opposed to the like you said, the only down light was that of the twelve o'clock for really the assistant. At, um, but everything else was just kind of like all this up lighting, and it made it look very just. I don't know, friendly and soft as opposed to harsh downlighting. So I'm actually going to modify that in my current build right now because I do have some specific little LED downlighting and I don't, I don't like it. Well, so, let's just, let's just talk about it because an operatory is a surgical suite, you know, essentially, and it's all directed around operator, but it's most, it's, it's an experiential place, you know, either good or bad for the patient. So you've got to mitigate both of those needs. It's got to be functional for them, but it's got to, I mean, for us, 
but it's also got to be disarming for them. So I guess the goal is is to get away with the least amount of light because once our task light is on, we don't really need anything else. I mean, if your task light works and, you know, new LED task lighting, you know, whether it's head mounted or ceiling mounted, you could actually have no light on and not need any light. So Right. That's right. The ambient lighting in a room and in the operatories, we always are recommending and specifying the direct and direct fixtures. If it's a lay-in fixture in the ceiling, as opposed to a down light, like a can light or something of that nature. So that, that style of light for ambient lighting is the best way to go. But um, as you've commented, really the only, only type of, of lighting that you need um, once in a procedure, as long as the room is lit, you just need your task light and the um, and the the ones that are mounted, you know, directly. The headlight. The headlight are far yeah. better. The headlights are are going to direct the light where it needs to be for the given task that you're on. So 100%, that's what we're specifying. I'm going to rename this podcast the the lighting specialty. It's so funny you just said that, Peter. I was literally <laughs> about to chat that to you. Like we need to, this is the lighting podcast. We got to move, man. We got to move off this topic. I, it's just uh Well, I think there's a lot of here and honestly, I'm going to split this up into two parts because I think there, you know, number I think I've, there's a couple other things I want to talk about that there's that I think we should break I'm going to break this up into two part two, but definitely the lighting is, you know, is is so underrated and I'm glad we I'm glad we beat that point down. But let's jump. Let's jump off of that, and and I want to talk about the importance of renovation. And, and recently, I just did a lecture in San Diego, and one of the one of the it was actually called the, the Eight Habits of Highly Performing Offices. And one of the habits I see is that high performing offices take an extreme amount of pride in their in their space. And I talked to some docs after it, and they're like, "Yeah, I've been in my office thirty years, and it works fine." I'm like, "Yeah, it works fine for you, but guess what? Your team may not be as passionate about that, and the patient perception." It might not be as fond as yours. So I, my advice to the, the audience was invest in your practice, renovate your practice, just do it because you're number one, you're there almost more times than you're more time than you're at home. And like, it really is, it's not just a waste of money. It really is an ROI. So Bruce, can you talk about the keeping the old, the old school, I'm doing finger, finger quotes now, dental office versus renovating that sucker, making the investment in your practice. Can you kind of elaborate on the absolutely? And the yeah, I would love to. Do to. That? Okay. Yeah, so um, let me just start with a scenario with a with a real example, um, a practice that we just actually ended up relocating them, but the same same rule applies. It's, it's transforming the space from older existing to something new, and and um, you know the, the practice that our client was coming from um, was 30, 30 year old practice, and um, to be fair, it was very well designed initially as a as a timeless sort of sort of design, and the practice looked clean and, and everything, but you know, the new space, since being transformed and, and relocated um, into something new, the doctor's words were that my, my staff are moving faster, walking lighter, and they're proud to show the space to the patients. And what that does to the productivity of all your staff is you can hardly measure it. You know, it's, um, it's something that, that you can't really calculate, but it, it sure does make a significant impact at the bottom line, line of your practice. Um, so that um, that's the staff and, and how they respond to react to a change, even if it's just a renovation and and improving the the, um, the workspace for them. Make it just a little bit better. Make it make it um, you know reduce a few steps or moves that they need to make in their daily um, activities in the practice, and you're going to increase your efficiencies and brighten it up, freshen it up, and that's just going to improve their mood and how well they care for your patients. You know, as opposed to an old space where 
um, you're just working out of that 30 year space. We consider that as lost revenue. That that's just money being lost on a on a daily basis because you know I, I always like to think of what is the patient going to do after they come for a visit. You know, the, are they just going to um, schedule their six month you know recheck again, or are they going to actually walk out that door and tell everyone that they see that that afternoon about how you know great their experience was at the dental office that day? So it's lost revenue in the sense that you're not getting those three referrals over the course of a six-month period from every one of your patients that you could have had otherwise had the office been up-to-date, modernized, and, and renovated. Um, so there's a, an impact both ways, both internally with your staff and externally with uh, new patients and existing patients. Well, you know, it's another thing to talk about, too, is, um, you know, Peter, you and I know a lot of dentists. And when I lecture, I meet a ton of dentists. And it's amazing how quick a dentist will be to want to invest in a, quote, side business. I know tons of dentists that will want to open up like an ice cream store or a candy store uh, or, you know, maybe invest in a you know crappy duplex. And uh, invariably, I'm, you know, I'm like, cool, what, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to open up a yogurt store. I'm opening up a Subway. And I'll look at their practices because, you know, Google and I'll look at the interior. And it's amazing how they, they view, they don't view an investment in their set in themselves as a business investment. When statistically proven, when you rehab an office, when you renovate, you can actually see a measurable increase in your volume of business that you do. It's been proven over and over. But they don't think of it that way. There's something that like, oh, I'll just go out and do business. But your practice is a business, you know, and, and, and it's that the distinct- best one that you can control, you know, like you yep. can control that investment versus subway you can't control or real estate you can't control. But putting you, control back in yourself is yeah. the greatest investment ever. I totally agree with you. Like there's no better venue. Yeah. And you don't know subway, you know, you don't understand. <laughs> and I know you. Yeah, I know you've That's had. Your frozen, I know you've <laughs> had. Not been, your lane. Stay in right, your lane, right? Right. <laughs> what? Why do you have to reinvent it? You've had this awesome degree that took you a ton of time to get. Like you don't know anything about bin candy and mixing yogurt. <laughs> why do you want to go there? But it's it's amazing, man. Our, our poor our poor profession, man. I I just don't get it. I I hope that some someone here is about to go hard on a on a, a yogurt shop and they're reconsidering because they're, they're pulling the plug. They're going to stay in like, their lane. They're yeah, gonna, man. Call call up some and then people. The increase that you mentioned as a result of a renovation, you know, the other thing that we see practices doing is just looking for innovative marketing ideas. How can I get my practice in front of, you know, X number of new patients and, and spending piles of, of cash on increasing a marketing budget to do something new and different? Well, if you were to take a renovation, say you invest um, 100 grand into your practice and you think it's astronomical, well, Take that and amortize it over 10 or 15 years' time and compare that to the cost of all the other marketing ideas you've had. And I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised at the treasure that you've just found in renovating. I mean, it's not it's not an expensive marketing campaign, honestly. I, I love that you just commented on that because people ask about marketing all the time. Like, hey, what Facebook and this ad and do this? And then I say the easiest way to do marketing is to make yourself remarketable, right? Yeah. Make your practice remarkable. Precisely. And that's the right. easiest way to market. I know it's kind of a play on words there. But like, you know, like the holy grail for a practice in terms of marketing should be internal referrals should outweigh your external referrals. When I, you know, a, a patient referral and someone – you know, do you know what internal referrals is? The we quantify there is just basically a, a friend or a family or existing patient referred. Coming from versus, patients, right. Yeah, be, versus just like, oh, I ran a magazine ad or I ran a Google AdWords or whatever. 
But my right. metric for, you know, I've always wanted to have the first, you know, the, the internal outweigh the external. But the easiest way to do that is make your practice remarkable and building a space that feels good and, and people are happy. And like, that's the first, it almost goes into the marketing budget. You know, and we're talking about, Greg, does, we're talking about external investments and whatever, but like literally well, if you, if you need to feel good about it, just put five grand away, you know, every month or whatever is your marketing budget into like designing your office fund to make it remarkable. Well, look at this. I, I when I was building my building, I, there was a billboard right by um, the lot I bought, and I said, "How much is that billboard?" They said, "It's eight thousand dollars a month, but it's a great investment because there's fifty six thousand cars that pass by every day." So I said, eight thousand a month for a billboard every month, and the minute I stop paying for it, I'll stop. I'll stop being remembered. So if I built a building right on the road that had a huge sign, wouldn't that be worth eight thousand a month? The same thing. I mean, but it'd be permanent. It would be never, and it would be much more rich as a marketing medium than just a flat billboard. You know, if I built a cool, yes. yeah, exactly. So, you know, and, and that I have a, um, a quote, I think I, I think I created this quote, but I can't even remember because, um, I hear so much, but I, I always said wait, either this is an original. I, wait, th- this is an original quote. Craig <laughs> yeah. Spodek original quote and here Ready? it is laid on his belt. Where's the drum roll? I don't have a drum roll button. I'm okay. not that sophisticated back here. Okay. This. How's this? Okay, so either That's spend the enough practice drum roll. Okay, good. That was a test. Either spend enough money in advertising to create a story for yourself, or you could just create something that's worth talking about. Say it again. Either spend like enough it. either spend enough money in advertising to create a story, or you could just create something that's worth talking about. That's yeah, the same kind of thing. I love that. I mean, that's, and you know, and that's and when you and I get calls, and uh, I know you get tons of calls. The first question out of every dentist's mouth is, "I just want to pick your brain about your marketing. You do wonderful marketing." And I say, "Well, what specific marketing are you talking about? Because I'm not in the magazine. I'm not. A, I don't have a TV commercial. So it's it's a very interesting. Dentists are grasping at." straws trying to figure out what the special sauce is and what it really is it's the experience and the experience is governed by everything that goes in your practice of course you have to have outstanding dentistry i mean that's first and foremost but on top of it your team has to look good they have to love their job the the space has to look good your lighting your signage i mean everything so it's like to quote uh, my buddy fred joyle everything is marketing and i read that book uh you know I guess six years ago when it first came out, just blew my mind, man. Blew my mind. I was like, wow, this guy's on it. And it's true. Space, the space going kind of into Bruce's space, Bruce's world is that the space is a huge component of that, of that brand extension because it's it's the largest component. I agree. Right. And when I think of Spodak Dental, I think, I mean, I, I immediately, I picture your building like that. I can't help but to be and your space and all this stuff now. So, a hundred percent. So these people may be asking you about, oh, I want to look, talk about your marketing. And you're saying, well, I don't really have a strategy other than I've just created excellence in, in all aspects. And that's that's my marketing, right? Well, I mean, think about Paris. You think about the Eiffel Tower. You think about like uh, Epcot Center. You think about that big ball. You think about St. Louis. You think about the arch. I mean, you think about McDonald's. You think about the golden arches. You think about Starbucks. You think the logo. I mean, we have an associative mind. And if all you can think about of Dr. Jones is that he's right next to Win Dixie, that doesn't have a very compelling. You know, how, how many times, Peter, that you're walking around, you're like, "Hey, who's your dentist?" Like, "Oh, I don't know, man. He's right by the Chipotle, you know, right by Best Buy and Chipotle." Like that guy has no allegiance. He has no brand loyalty. If that's all you can be described as, like where you're close to, you know, there has to be there has to be an experiential thing that pulls up when you think about a brand of any sort or a city or anything iconic. 
and it all has to correlate is the um the thing we like to encourage our, our doctors for for brand to be strong it has to be uh correlated with with everything so your your um clinical care of course is of utmost excellence well that should be everything everything that we've just commented on or mentioned should match that level you know the staff and and you know the appearance of, of the practice and um, even the the building the facility that you're in externally um when you pull up out front what do you see i mean it, it all needs to correlate and talk the same language yeah for sure love it this is my favorite podcast i want to this is my favorite one it's you uh <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's because I did all the talking. That's why I like it. No, so you much. did. You added a ton of value, Mr. Biophotonic. You added plenty of plenty of value. Uh, I I think this is uh you've honestly this conversation has gotten gotten me. I was excited too because I'm actually like I said in the throes of construction right now. And so honestly, based on this, I'm going to go back and kind of talk about doing some tweaks with my GC because um, there's some things that are important and and and. I like a quality build. So like, I'm actually, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to tell me like invest in the experience because I create nice spaces. I just, you know, I like that, but it's patient benefited, you know, it's for their benefit, not for mine. All right. Well, maybe a little bit for mine, but, um, but my point is, is that, is that I am going to go back and kind of, um, audit, audit some of the decisions that I've made to make sure that it's, that it's going to what you, what we've all discussed here today. Anything else that you want to add that we missed, Bruce, in terms of anything? Yeah, maybe just one last thing, um, sure. if that's okay. Um, we always like to talk about the uh, the location or the facility itself. We've, we've um, covered a lot of ground, you know, fantastic um, discussion about the interior and the environment and so on. But when we talk about either a relocation or a new practice or a second practice or third one or so on, um, how do we find the right location um, is, is a crucial point. And, you know, we mentioned previously the retail setting and we've seen so much movement towards retail um, from office and dentistry. Um, and it's not to say that office, you know, that you can't make build a great practice out of a professional building or some sort of office based facility, but you know, retail is you know, among the most accessible types of uh, facilities to get in and out of. And we always like to consider when we're looking at a new location or a new facility is how easy is it to find and access the space. So pull up and, and get in and get out is going to just enhance the experience that much more. Um, so that's something to consider while we're covering, you know, the uh, the demographic study of a new location, you know, the um, population to practitioner ratio for a competition. Um, what's density there? The demographics of the people that you want to um, have as your patients, um, traffic patterns and all that. Along with that should be the thought of the facility itself. So that was... Uh, one last thought I want to make sure we can cover. I, I want to comment on the first thing you said too, because I think uh, I totally agree with you. The the acts the ease of access. I I tell my team like the more times we can let the patient hit the easy button, just metaphorically speaking, the better. Like, can they pull up and walk right Absolutely. into our building? Yes, they don't have versus going in a parking garage and getting a ticket and then going and getting paying the you know like all these things. Sometimes and sometimes you just the have to. I mean, if you're in New in. York or crowded super crowded city of urban course. environment, you got to do it. Right, it is what it is. But like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm reinforcing what you're saying, but you know, we got to, you know, in the, in the Uber and Amazon now economy, like everyone's looking for the most time, uh, efficient way to hit that easy button. And if it's parking is readily available and you can see, and you can find the building super easy and you don't wait in the waiting room. I know, we're, I know we're getting kind of off topic a little bit, but you know, it's going back to what you're saying, uh, in the first part of what you said was just kind of, if we can hit the easy button, the more times, the better. 
And I think that's why the conversion well, has been going to retail. Is I think that's why we're seeing more retail is from exposure, obviously, but also from a convenience standpoint. Pull up, walk in. Craig, anything else to add, buddy? No, I mean, as far as like, you know, convenience and my big thing is, um, you know, when you see my office, it's not, I wouldn't call it convenient as far as like walking. Like, I, no, I remember I'm the not first- talking about that either, but, but getting in your car. I mean, you have copious parking. Oh, yeah. No, so and we copious were copious visibility. So, like, correct. That, that's yeah. good. So, so, the most, the biggest driver for me was uh, visibility. So um, a hard there is a, there's a reason why CVS and you know uh, major retails want hard corners they want that double access or double visibility from two streets there's a metric behind that so you can correlate visibility and and retail success but um, as far as uh, parking we doubled everything so I was required by the city to have five spots per thousand so what's that 60 65 spots I think we are like at 120. And my employees have to park towards the back because I want because that that's part of it all, man. I, I used to go to a hair salon or whatever, and uh, you know a barber rather, and and uh, the you parking was such hair a salon. No, yeah, well, when I was getting that was a nail salon actually. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but when the barber shop I used to go to it didn't have any parking. It was a uh, it was really difficult, and it's part of the experience. So if you don't make it easy and convenient Good. for them, it's going to they're going to start to not like you. Everything is associated with your brand. Simple. I agree. Simple I agree. stuff. That's it. All right, man. Well, Bruce, it's been uh, it's been awesome to talk to you. I think that we've given a lot of insight, and obviously, you can tell Craig and I are pretty passionate about these two um, because we we stole the microphone a little bit and um, kind of ran away with it. But you know, I learned a lot. Really appreciate it. Looking at your website, and honestly, you've designed you've designed some drop dead gorgeous spots. Like I would I would like any of these almost to be in my my uh, practice portfolio, honestly. So you've you you've done a good thing and they all look friendly and inviting and you know ergonomic in the standpoint. So I would encourage people to go to apexdesignbuild.net is uh, Bruce's website. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And you know, based on the fact that we've now been going um, you know, a little over an hour, I probably may break this up into two parts. So anyway, Bruce, you have the distinct privilege of being a two-parter and you didn't even know. Thank you. I appreciate the discussion. Really uh really enjoyed it and uh I learned learned a lot. Um, love the discussion. So, so how can people, it. if someone has questions based on things that we've discussed here, um, how can how can what's the easiest way to reach out to you? Uh, email is probably the easiest. Um, okay. Do you want me just to give that to you now? Yeah, just lay it on. Sure, it's Bruce J at apexdesignbuild.net. So it's a pretty long one. Bruce J at apexdesignbuild.net. And I'll put that in the notes as well. I just wanted wanted to go over that. Um, yeah, man, I appreciate your time. Appreciate the value. And it's a super important um, a topic uh, and one that unfortunately is, is like we talked about earlier, one that unfortunately is overlooked a little bit too much. And I think it, it's, uh, it should become a lot more important in our, in our industry. So, so yeah, that was great, Bruce. Thank you so much. Thanks, uh, Pete. All right. Was, thank you much. This is very right, fun guys. for me. Have a, have a great day. Right. Great finish today. All right. See you guys. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Bulletproof Dental Practice with your hosts, Dr. Peter Bolden and Dr. Craig Spodak. Online at BulletproofDentalPractice.com. We'll catch you next time.